So welcome everybody. Let's take a minute and cultivate our motivation. So Shanti Devas says that this life is like a flash of lightning in a dark night. In other words, the dark night is our state in samsara, and it's dark because we're so often born in lower rebirths due to karma and afflictions. And the light from uh, the flash of lightning is like the time we have in this life as a human being with all the conditions to practice the Dharma. So this life may seem very long to us, but actually when you think of beginningless time, this life is nothing. So while we have it, it really is in our interest and the interest of all beings if we make use of it, particularly by putting effort into generating bodhicitta and then motivated by that altruistic intention, follow the steps of the path to full awakening so we'll have the ability to be of the greatest benefit to others. So thinking in the long term, and let's place what we're doing this evening within that, and have a sense of joy at having the opportunity that we have right this very moment. So there were some questions last week and points to check, and I want to um, start off this evening by going through those again. So first of all, the there was a question about the view of the personal identity and how that's different from the view holding the extremes. Okay. So I didn't explain it exactly uh, right last time. So the the idea is more that with view of the uh, personal identity, we're looking on the mirror eye, the conventionally existent eye, and grasping it as inherently existent. Then following that with the view of the extremes then we either think of that I, that inherently existent I, as being something that uh, exists eternally, like a soul or something, something immutable that is uh, 
never going to discontinue. Or, so that's the absolutist view. And then in this context, and then the nihilistic view is that that inherently existing I is going to cease at the time of death and there's no continuity. Okay, so it's a view either where we think um, that there's absolutely no rebirth because at the time of death, the body and mind both discontinue, so there's no self, or we think that there's some kind of immutable person that is going to continue at the time of death, yeah, even after the body has uh, decayed and the mental aggregates have ceased. So it's looking at the the inherently existent I, and either it's eternal or it's its continuity is cut. Okay, so that's view of the personal. That's a view of the extremes. Okay, so you would first have view of the personal identity, and then based on that, you have view of the extremes. Then wrong view, okay? So wrong view uh, is in the, there's two uses of it. One is as um, the tenth of the ten non-virtues, or the ten non-virtuous paths of action. And the second is wrong views as a mental factor, like we're studying here, as, uh, you know, one of the five afflictive views. So what is written in the book on page 85 is correct. Yeah, it does not mean to be changed. So it says, wrong views in the context of the ten paths of non-virtue and in the context of root afflictions differ slightly. The latter, so when it's talked about in root afflictions, is more pervasive in that it includes not only negating what is what does exist, such as the three jewels, karma and its effects, uh, rebirth, things like that, things that do exist and you're negating, but it also uh, holds what does not exist as existing. So it's the wrong view that thinks there's a creator God or some kind of meta- metaphysical primal substance or universal mind out of which everything is created. Okay? Uh, whereas the wrong views in the context of the the ten paths of non-virtue is denying what does exist, yeah, in terms of spiritual things. Okay? Yeah, so the wrong views that ascribes existence to what is not existent is the one that is more pervasive, and that's the wrong views as a mental factor. Okay? So I'm going to start with the uh, paragraph right after that, and then we'll continue down on page 85. So wrong views cut the root of virtue gradually, not all at once. The roots of virtue decrease while the wrong views get stronger. For example, although Sally practices generosity, her career does not advance. Meanwhile, she sees people who lie get promoted. 
So the wrong view arises in her mind that it's useless to create virtue. Yeah. So she's denying cause and effect. Yeah. And slowly this idea grows stronger so that even if her teacher tries to explain that her hindrances are due to previously created destructive karma and her present constructive actions will bring agreeable results in the future, she doesn't listen. She's just stuck with, it's useless to create virtue because, you know, I thought, all my previous virtue was going to give me this promotion, and it uh, it didn't. So I just don't believe in in that whole law of cause and effect anymore. Okay, so the mind is quite closed. It's not just a passing thought of, uh, well, I have doubts about cause and effect, but it's like I do not believe in this. Okay. So she completely dismisses the law of karma and its effects. Such an entrenched wrong view severs the root of virtue in her mind, destroying the seeds of virtue. So it doesn't destroy all the seeds of virtue, yeah, um, but it destroys a chunk of it, or it inhibits the ripening of uh, some of the seeds of virtue. When it says destroy, destroy doesn't always mean it's completely obliterated, at least when they talk about destroying the roots of virtue. It, it just means that it's, it's, uh, it hampers its ripening or it you know, ultimately makes it like a burnt seed where it can't ripen. Yeah, and then after you realize emptiness, that seed is completely removed from the mind stream. Mm -hmm. Well, that that's not talking in terms of non-virtue, okay? Just trying the roots of non-virtue. The roots of virtue are not going to get completely removed from your mind stream. Um, you know, well, they, they could. Yeah, they could, the way it's explained. Yeah, they could. But it's not the re realization of emptiness that will make them, yeah, uh, eliminated from the mind stream. The realization of em emptiness is what makes the roots of uh, non-virtue completely um, eliminated from the mind. So it's easy to glaze over wrong views in our own minds, believing them to be correct. We don't even recognize them very often as wrong views until you're sometimes in Dharma class and somebody says, well, wait a minute, that's not right. And then you go, well, yes, it is. And, uh, you know, and then you begin to look deeper. Observing our views, assumptions, and beliefs and questioning their veracity helps us to become aware of wrong views we haven't yet even recognized. Okay, so for example, people who were raised in another religion may find that deep in their minds they still hold beliefs that they were taught as children. And I find this in talking to people. You know, we'll be talking about some Dharma's topic and then they'll come up with, well, I really feel like, 
you know, Buddha's there looking over us, uh, and it's his will that uh, is determining what happens. And it's like, no, it's not. You know, it's not Buddha's will. If Buddha, if everything were Buddha's will, we wouldn't be in samsara. Okay. And Buddha's not managing the world and he's not dishing out rewards and punishments. But we carry all of that over from what we learned as kids. Yeah. But we don't even recognize it sometimes that we're holding that kind of view. Mm -hmm. Okay. So beliefs we were taught as children, beliefs in a creator, a soul, reward and and punishment for ethical and unethical behavior, and so on. So these may distort our understanding of Buddhist concepts that sound familiar, and they hinder our understanding the teachings correctly. Examining them closely and using reason to decide what we believe is important to resolve the confusion wrong views cause. Okay, so really, you know, it's good to look sometimes at how we are re internally, how we are responding to different situations, because we could very easily find things that sound Buddhist, but they're leftovers from what we learned as kids. Especially this reward and punishment business. Okay, if you had that drummed into you as a kid that, you know, oh, you lied about where you put the toys and so, you know, you're going to go to hell for that and you, you need to confess and purify and do this and that, then you hold that in your mind. And, you know, you're, you're afraid of going to hell. You feel guilty. Yeah. You feel like, gee, you know, I lied about where I put the toys and, and this is terrible and I never purified it and, and it weighs on you. Yeah. And then you hear Buddha's teachings about cause and effect and you think, oh, yeah, well, Buddhism's saying the same thing. And I'm going to get punished, and I, you know I'm going to hell for that. And that's that's not what is going on in Buddhism. Okay, nobody is rewarding us. Nobody is punishing us. Guilt is not a virtuous attitude. It's something to be abandoned on the path. You know, because often we feel that. You know, or we assume that the guiltier we feel, the more we are purifying the non-virtue. And the more we beat ourselves up, how bad I am, how could I have done that? You know, the more we beat ourselves up, the more we're purifying. And both of those are not Buddhist concepts at all. Yeah, feeling, you know... There's a difference between feeling regret and beating ourselves up. Feeling regret is one of the four powers to help us purify. And regret is, you know, I made a mistake and I'm sorry I made a mistake. Yeah, I put my hand on the, on the, uh, burner in the kitchen without realizing it was still hot and I burned my hand. And I regret that. That is very different than I put my hand on the burner. 
It's burnt. Oh, what a terrible person I am. How could I have done that? I'm so stupid. This is a punishment for something that I did before, and I deserve to have a burnt hand. And, you know, I'm so guilty. I feel terrible. And, you know, yeah, on and on and on, which is another form of self-importance. Isn't it? Yeah. It's totally, if I can't be the best, well, I am the worst. And I am the crummiest, horrible, most despicable person on this planet. And I deserve to suffer. And this was taught to you as a kid. Or maybe you were taught something similar as a kid and you misunderstood it. And you used it to blame yourself and tell yourself you were awful. But this is not what Buddhism is saying. Okay? Buddhism is saying, you made a, a mistake, regret it. Yeah? Make amends. Do something to make it up. Change your attitude about the people that you harmed. And then you purify it. And it's not going to ripen. And... Doing a, a, a destructive action, creating negative karma, does not mean that we're horrible people. The action is different than the person. So we need to purify the action. Yeah, but it's not like we are inherently evil and we need to use some kind of spiritual Ajax, which is never going to work because, you know, this is who we inherently are, and there's no hope. Okay? So really check your minds and see, you know, when do I get into this thing of self-hatred? And where did I learn that? Where did that come from? And why am I bringing that into Buddhism when that is not what the Buddha is talking about? Then you go, well, if the Buddha isn't talking about that, what is he saying? And then it's like, oh, I, I guess I better read it again. And it's like, oh, the Buddha said, yeah, these are the negative actions. They create hindrances in your future lives. Here's how to purify them. One, two, three, four. Do the purification with a sincere mind. And then put it down. Okay? Don't sit there. Again, you know, there may be things that you did that you feel really badly about. And so when you're in your purification practice, you may confess those repeatedly and repeatedly make a strong um, determination to do that again. But that is... The, the, what's motivating that is, you know, we don't want to suffer in the future and we, we want to progress on the path. So we need to get rid of what, whatever is blocking us. Okay. That's not motivated by, I am such a terrible person. Where's that spiritual Ajax? But it's not going to work anyway because I'm so horrible, you know? So where's the whip so I can beat myself up? You know, 
either physically beat myself up, go in the ocean's freezing water, torture my body, and somehow through all the pain I experience, I will be purified. If that were true, why, after six years of doing ascetic practice, did the Buddha stop and say, this is not leading me to awakening? And he stopped the ascetic practices, even though all of his friends called him a flake. But he said, look, this isn't working. Yeah, he crossed the river, he sat under the Bodhi tree. That's when he got enlightened. He didn't get enlightened when he was like torturing his body. Okay? So, yeah. Look carefully for those sneaky things yeah, that are hiding in there that we learned, you know, from who knows where we pick them up. But uh, we need to ferret them out and look at them and say, is this true? You know? So wrong views are based on ignorance and they arise due to incorrect logic. Okay, so ignorance, not seeing the situation clearly, and incorrect logic, yeah? And if you look and really check the logic, quote, quote, uh, you know, logic, uh, behind some of the, the views we have or assumptions we have, we realize that it's not logical at all. Yeah, it, it's complete hogwash. So, um, but... Yeah, these wrong views are especially difficult to abandon because the mistaken reasons and beliefs that are their basis must be dismantled. So we need to really apply correct logic and reasoning and look at the situation clearly. Yeah. However, due to strong attachment, some people are reluctant to re-examine their cherished beliefs and are thus resistant to hearing reasons that refute the assumptions at their basis. Yeah, so somebody tells you, you know, God's not going to punish you for this. And you go, look, you know, I, I, I know. I know how I feel in my heart, and in my heart I feel like, I'm going to get punished for this. And, and, you know, and they can't hear anything else because that's how deeply entrenched it is, even though it's something that was just learned in this lifetime. Yeah? So when we see those things, we have to really explore them. Yeah? Really look at them and dismantle them. Yeah. But when we are open and someone points out to us the absurd consequences that result from our wrong views, we begin to reevaluate our beliefs. Yeah? That's helpful. Once we doubt an incorrect view, we can use reasoning to generate a correct assumption and then an inferential understanding. 
As we do so, our minds become clearer and more peaceful. Yeah, wrong views don't make the mind peaceful. Yeah, there's agitation in the mind. And, you know, it's very easy, um, you know, some new age things bring you into wrong views, some, uh, you know, traditional religious views in, in other faiths are basically wrong views. Yeah. So uh, we can get ourselves tangled up. I think I told you once about one of my friends who teaches Dharma, and somebody came to him one time and said, oh, you know, I grew up as a Christian, and now I'm Buddhist, and I'm afraid if I become a Buddhist, uh, I'm going to go to Christian hell for being a heretic. But then I'm afraid if I'm a Christian, I'm going to go to Buddhist hell for having wrong views. Okay, now what is the logic in that? How is that reasonable? Is completely dis- uh, uh, what's the word? Catty wampus. <laughs> yeah, it's a catty wampus belief. Yeah. And we tie ourselves up in knots like that, so that we are damned if we do and damned if we don't. Okay, and then we get depressed. Uh, and then, you know, we, we crawl into a hole and, and just say, you know, it's all hopeless. And it's all false. It's not that it's all hopeless. It's all false. You know, it, you, it's like the people who believe in QAnon. Oh, you know what the latest QAnon one is? This is a good one. The, uh, how do you say it? Chikadias? Chikadias. Cicadas. Okay, just cicadas. They all came out this year. So, Joe Biden, I don't know who he was talking to, but there's a picture of a cicada that landed on his shirt collar. And QAnon says that that is a special message telling him something. Q hasn't told us what the message is yet. But that was a secret message for the president. You know, it's probably about all those Democrats who are abusing children in the basement of the pizza parlor. <laughs> yeah? Okay. So somebody can get themselves, and people do, we've seen it, they get themselves all wrapped up in QAnon theories. Yeah, I saw this one interview on the the inauguration day, and uh, CNN. The guy was interviewing one man who was a QAnon believer, who you know this was the morning of the of the inauguration, and he was sure that by the afternoon Donald Trump was going to be the person inaugurated as president. Yeah. He, you know, and the latest one is that he will return to the presidency sometime in August. Yeah. So people, you know, get themselves 
all revved up believing these things and seeing these connections. And then you try and reason with them and, you know, forget it. Forget it. The, the wrong views are just there entrenched and it's really difficult to get through. Yeah, I saw interviews of some, some of the children of the parents who follow QAnon, and they feel like they've lost their parents. Yeah, their parents went down the rabbit hole. So, so yeah, look, we should look and find whatever things like that are lurking in our mind that are impeding us from, you know, understanding renunciation, bodhicitta, and the correct view. Okay? So wrong views easily support unethical conduct. People who dismiss the law of cause and effect and hold that there is no connection between our actions and our experiences, may wave away any sense of responsibility for their actions. I don't believe in karma. You know, there's no ethical dimension to my actions. As long as the cops don't find out, I'm okay. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I had that idea for a certain period in my life. You know, especially around the story I told you last time, which I will never, ever say to anybody again, because I wasn't expecting that, that response. So now I am shut down, and I will not tell you any more stories. <laughs> okay. So these people who uh, abdicate any sense of responsibility for their actions, they believe that they can do anything they wish, including extortion, rape, and but brutality, because their actions will not adversely affect them. And the only possible consequences being arrest by the police, which they try to avoid. Okay, So you look, the people who have the view that killing infidels to protect their own religion. Yeah, this was, you know, it, this is not just uh, a theory of, of ISIS. This goes back to the Crusades. You know, what were the Christian Crusaders doing? They wanted to kill all the infidels. Yeah, so they marched into Spain and they burned people at the stake. They marched into the Middle East and, you know, did all sorts of stuff. And they thought, this is a correct view and I'm, I'm doing what God wants. Yeah? The evangelicals who throw away their, their own morality, yeah, for political benefit to back a candidate who completely goes against their own morality, but in order to get political benefit from that person, you know, it is difficult to help them understand how they're being hypocritical. Yeah, because the wrong view is so strong in their minds. So we need to 
Be careful. Wrong views prevent people from attaining realizations of the path, liberation, and awakening. Someone with strong belief in in an external creator will find the doctrine of emptiness uninteresting and make no attempt to learn or understand it. So some people... um, you know, they're, they're very devout Christians. They come to Buddhism. They like what's taught in Buddhism, especially, you know, the, some of the teachings about developing love and compassion and forgiveness and managing anger and these kinds of things. And, uh, and they ask, you know, well, can I practice this part of Buddhism and still be a Christian? And His Holiness says, yes, you know, you can take what is useful in Buddhism and practice it and still remain, uh, you know, uh, have, have be of another faith tradition. That's perfectly okay. But He says, at a certain point, if you believe in a, an external creator, then since that doesn't jive with the, with emptiness, you're at that point in your practice, you'll need to decide kind of which view you, you hold. Yeah. Um, but even after you decide that, you can still practice the meditations on love and compassion and so on. Still ben- they still benefit everybody. Okay. Yeah, so someone with strong beliefs in an external creator will find the doctrine of emptiness uninteresting and and they'll find it nihilistic, yeah? And they'll make no attempt to learn or understand it. Someone who believes that sentient beings are inherently selfish, you know, some scientists may think, you know, we are hardwired to fight against things that uh, attack us and preserve our life, yeah? that we are inherently self-centered and look out for ourselves first. So some of these people um, may not think that training our minds in compassion is worthwhile or even possible because how are you going to overcome these things that are hardwired in you, um, you know, to look out for yourself first? Okay, and they consider the cultivation of bodhicitta a useless pursuit. So the way to happiness, change the the chemicals in your mind. Yeah. So all Buddhist tenant systems agree that these five views, the ones, uh, view of, of personal identity, extreme views, holding extreme views as best, uh, holding um, wrong views about ethics and practices, and then this one of wrong views. So uh, all the Buddhist ten- tenant systems agree that these five are afflictive in that they disturb the mind. View of a personal identity and view of the extremes themselves are ethically neutral. They disturb the mind, but they're ethically neutral. And you can hold those views and still have uh, other virtuous mental factors in your mind, okay? Because you can hold on to uh, an inherently existent I 
and make offerings to the Buddha. Yeah, look at these beautiful offerings I'm making to the Buddha. Inherently beautiful things that an inherently existent I is, is offering. That's, that's virtue. Yeah, even though there's view of a personal identity. Yeah, so the per- view of a personal identity is neutral. It can either lie behind virtuous mental states or non-virtuous mental states. Yeah. But the remaining three, okay, holding wrong views as supreme and then uh, holding wrong ethics and practices as the correct path and then wrong views, those three are non-virtuous. Okay, so the first two of the five uh, um, uh, afflictive views are neutral, and the last three are non-virtuous. The tenant systems also agree that all five afflictive views are rooted in, in ignorance and have an element of not knowing the object. Okay, so the different tenant systems often define ignorance differently, but they agree on that point, okay, that uh, the afflictive views are rooted in ignorance and have an, an element of not knowing the object. Prasangikas take it a step further and say that all afflictive views are forms of ignorance. Yeah, so that's why in uh, the... 12 links of dependent arising, yeah, a view of a personal identity is put together with ignorance as the first link. Okay. So according to the treasury of knowledge, who is was written by Asubandhu, and is a text practiced by what? Tenant systems by Vasaka, and it's commentary by Satantrika. Okay, so according to the treasury of knowledge, wrong views are a kind of corrupt intelligence. So remember, we talked about intelligence because they think about the views and corrupt because they come up with the wrong conclusion. According to the compendium of knowledge, which was written by Asanga, okay? They are called corrupt intelligence, but are not actually intelligence, because intelligence must necessarily be virtuous, and afflictive views are non-virtuous. Okay, so Vasubandhu and his brother Asanga have different uh, takes on what the meaning of intelligence is. However, both texts agree that the mental factor of wrong views and the mental factor of ignorance do not have a common locus. So that there's nothing that is both the mental factor of wrong views and the mental factor of ignorance. Now, why not? Okay. If those systems say, yeah, that, um, 
Where does it have it above? Mm-hmm. Okay. So why why uh, wouldn't let's go for few the through the four P's. Yeah, we're saying that there's no common locus. Yeah. So let let's start out with what is the mental factor of wrong views, but not the mental factor of ignorance. Not believing in karma. Okay. Yeah. Not believing in karma. Uh, what would be ignorance, but not wrong views? Yeah. Seeing the eye is inherently exist, or just the general uh, obscuration in the mind that prevents us from seeing reality. What's something that's neither of them? Love. Love. Okay. Now, is there something that's both of them? That is both ignorance and the mental factor of wrong views. And what would prevent something from being both? But it's wrong. Why say it? Yeah, no, per, view of personal identity isn't included in wrong views. Okay. It seems like if wrong views is includes believing in something that doesn't exist, you could say that believing in inherently existing I would be a wrong view. There's no inherently existing I, and you believe in one. Mm-hmm. So you're believing in something that doesn't exist. So the definition or explanation that, that, of wrong view that would be put under. I think that would be put under. Uh, that would be acquired view of a personal identity. I know, but I'm just saying, according to the explanation of what inc- what a wrong view is, it seems like yeah that could be included. Yeah, but whether they would include that as a wrong view or say. You know, would they would they say that there's a common locus between view of a personal identity and wrong views? Probably not. I just never heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, think about it a bit. But I I'm just curious about why when it says prasangikas say that all five afflictive views are are forms form of, of, ignorance. of ignorance. Yeah. That's um, puzzling. Then it would sound like, oh, you know why? Because uh, prasangikas uh, include in ignorance the, the grasping, whereas the lower schools say that it's just general obscuration on the mind. So there would be nothing that would just be obscuration plus a corrupt intelligence, if you were looking from the viewpoint of, of the lower systems, of the, of the essentialists. But then there are all those different kinds of ignorance. There were like nine different meanings of the term ignorance. Yeah. But if we just are looking at the meaning of ignorance that's commonly accepted by all the tenant systems, it's the just obscuration that uh, that prevents us from seeing how things exist. So is that the kind of ignorance that's meant here when prasangikas say that 
afflictive views or ignorance. When it says prasangikas say that afflictive views are forms of ignorance, it means that kind of ignorance and not ignorance no, grasping and inherent existence. No, the prasangikas define ignorance differently than than the view that is common among all the Buddhist tenet systems. But so, what is the prasangika view of ignorance? The, that it's not only the the obscuration in the mind that prevents us from seeing the four truths accurately, but it is an active grasping at the opposite way than how things actively actually exist. So are you saying that whenever prasangikas talk about ignorance, they're only talking about that kind It depends of on the context. Sometimes the prasangikas talk in the context of, when they talk in the context of the four, four noble truths, yeah, sometimes they talk about it in the context of everything that is shared by all the tenant systems, and then sometimes they talk about it according to how things are defined in their own tenant system. Sorry, I'm still yeah. confused. <laughs> anyway. Um, okay. According to the compendium of knowledge, the path of action of wrong views, so the tenth non-virtue, is the mental factor of wrong views and is not ignorance. Okay. Asanga says this because wrong views are corrupt intelligence and ignorance being obscuration and unknowing is not. So th that would be like one of the reasons why there wouldn't be a, a common locus. Yeah, because because the wrong views are corrupt intelligence and ignorance as defined by the lower tenant systems is not a corrupt intelligence. It's just fog in the mind. But the prasangikas say it's not just fog. It's an active grasping at things as existing in the opposite way than how they actually exist. Okay, so the reflection, <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's some tricky things in this chapter. More are coming. Um, make examples from your own experience of times each of the five afflictive views have manifested in your mind. Okay, good homework assignment, huh? Two, are these views easier or more difficult to notice? than the first five afflictions. What do you think? Are they easier or more difficult? Hmm? They're more difficult. But it's interesting that uh, three of the five are only acquired views. They don't have innate, the last three. Okay. Um, and then three, what effect do afflictive views have on your Dharma practice? So this is something really to think about. Yeah. And then especially, you know, view of, of uh, a personal identity. What, how does that affect your Dharma practice? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then four, what will help you to subdue these afflictive views? 
Yeah. And similarly, you know, wrong views about the um, uh, uh, ethical conduct and practices. How do we get involved in those? Yeah. Do we have uh, a certain thing in our mind that, like, you have to do rituals exactly right or else... You know, do we have ideas? Some of the Brahminical things have crept into Buddhism. Yeah, but uh, not at all levels of Buddhism, but some where, uh, yeah, everything external needs to be set up exactly perfectly, you know, for the ritual to be perfect. And do, do we have that kind of idea? Um, yeah, so it's, it's interesting to just explore. Yeah. Do we hold different superstitious ideas? Yeah, like when we moved into the abbey, you know, in, in um, Ananda, there's one uh, in the main room, there's an altar in the corner. Yeah. So somebody wrote us, some Western guy and said, that's really inauspicious to put an altar in the corner. I had never heard that before. And I don't know what in the world, why that would be inauspicious. And the Tibetans have a thing that you do not give your teacher shoes as a gift, because that will make, that will make them go away. <laughs> yeah. Now, that's not Buddhist, but it's part of Tibetan culture. And the Tibetans don't always differentiate culture and and uh, dharma. Yeah, the, the the two are quite mixed together. Okay, like if you if you eat long noodles in in Chinese culture, you will live a long life. Yeah, and if you eat walnuts, it's good for your brain because walnuts look like your brain. Yeah. Yeah. No, but but that's why we do have the long noodles. You know, remember you pick them up and then everybody's waiting in line behind you because you can't get to the end of the noodles to put in your bowl. Okay, so now we're on the next section, which is called More Types of Defilements. So this chapter, True Origins of Dukkha, we will go into, you know, lots of different classifications of negativities. Yeah, so just get prepared. Uh, Yeah, and these don't even hit all 84,000. Okay, so to broaden our perspective on true origins, we will now look at other ways the sutras and the Abhidharma texts of both the Pali and the Sanskrit traditions describe the, the afflictive mental factors that propel samsara. Okay, so there are many classification systems, each one looking at the defilements from a slightly different perspective that emphasizes particular points. Okay, so just to give you, uh, what do you say, advance warning. So so first we're going to talk about the Pali view of afflictions or klesa. Then uh, what they, 
say, our underlying tendencies, which also accords with Vasubandhu. Okay, then we'll do auxiliary afflictions. This is from the low rig text. And the Pali tradition also has auxiliary afflictions, some of which overlap with the ones in the Sanskrit tradition and some of which don't. Then we have fetters, okay, and pollutants and hindrances. And then the next uh, section in the next chapter is the 84,000 afflictions. <laughs> okay? So, you know, in the text, they, they have these different classifications, and each classification emphasizes different ones. Okay? So it's very helpful to learn them and to see what they emphasize and to also see where they overlap and where they don't overlap. And then especially to find them all in our own minds. Yeah. Okay. So the auxiliary afflictions emphasize the relationship of secondary afflictions and root afflictions. Abandonment or reduction in the ten fetters uh, de delineates Attainment of the stages of stream-enterer, once-returner, non-returner, and arhat. So that's why you talk about ten fetters. The pollutants, or contaminants, are discussed in the context of their being the basic mental contaminants that keep sentient beings revolving in cyclic existence because they are so well entrenched in the mind. So that's emphasizing how deep they are. Okay. Sometimes the description of a defilement varies from one text or tradition to another. So slightly different definitions. So this gives us more information about that defilement and its functions, making it easier for us to identify it when it arises in our minds. And in some if I, uh, situations, if I remember correctly, our two friends, pretension and deceit, have the uh, the Pali terms are the same as the Sanskrit terms, but the definitions are in reverse. Yeah. Okay. So what follows are not simply lists of defilements, but mirrors to our minds that help us to identify the various attitudes, emotions, and views that disturb our minds. These defilements cause us to experience unhappiness here and now and instigate the creation of destructive karma that brings unpleasant results in the future. So that's why we have to study them. As you read the descriptions of the various defilements, Pause after each one and make an example of it in your own experience. This will bring these lists alive for you and reveal them as an excellent tool for identifying factors that hinder your happiness and the fulfillment of your spiritual aims. So just as Marshall uh, Rosenberg had uh, lists of feelings and needs, yeah, and that, that list helps you find the words to 
to describe what's going on inside your own mind. So these lists, too, supply us with the words to describe certain things that are, that are happening in our mind that obscure the mind. Okay. I think we get into the... I hope we get into... <laughs> the uh, 11 afflictions. All this, this whole section is about the, uh, the second truth, so we're unlikely to find this uh, list of, of virtuous mental factors here. Okay, so the first group is afflictions. So this is according now to the Pali tradition, we just did the root afflictions according to the Sanskrit tradition. Now, this is the Pali. Okay, so the in the Pali suttas, the afflictions, or kilesa, are mentioned often but are not itemized. Their enumeration is found in the Vibhanka and explained in the Dhammasangini, both canonical Abhidharma texts. The path of purification by Acharya Buddhaghosa also discusses them, saying they are caused afflictions because they themselves are afflicted and because they afflict their associated mental states. Yeah, And in the Sanskrit tradition, they were called uh, afflictions because they disturbed the mind. So it's coming to the same point. So the afflictions here are 10 in number. Yeah, and some overlap, and some are a little bit different. So the first three are our old friends, okay? Greed or attachment. They usually translate the Pali here as greed. Animosity or hatred is the second one. And confusion, or uh, the term is moha in both Sanskrit and, and uh, Pali. So those three are called roots, just like in the Sanskrit tradition, because their presence determines the ethical quality of a mental state as well as the verbal and physical actions it motivates. Okay, so that's why those three are important. Yeah. Then their opposites, uh, li liberality, loving-kindness, and wisdom, are the three roots of virtue. Okay. Then the fourth of the afflictions is our old friend arrogance. And this arrogance is also one of the higher fetters, fetters that is abandoned only at our hotship. On the basis of any of the five aggregates, which are impermanent, dukkha by nature, and not self, Arrogance thinks, I am superior, equal, or inferior. So we saw those so, so, same three forms of arrogance among the lists of seven types of arrogance in the Sanskrit. And then afflictive views, which we also have. Okay, So uh, the afflictive views are numerous but can be condensed into eternalism and nihilism, or absolutism and nihilism. Okay. Then the next, uh, number six, seven, and eight, are diluted doubt, okay, which is also one of the root afflictions. Uh, 
restlessness, which, and the last one is lethargy. So restlessness is a hindrance list, listed under the hindrances, and uh, so is lethargy. Mm -hmm. So these three are three of the five hindrances. Yeah, doubt is one of the five hindrances too, but it's also a root affliction. And those, the hindrances will come later in this chapter. Then uh, nine, number nine and 10 are lack of integrity and lack of consideration for others, yeah, which are considered um, auxiliary afflictions in the Sanskrit tradition. But these two are instrumental in creating destructive karma. Lack of integrity is directed inwards Underneath uh, or under its influence, we do not respect our principles and precepts and thus do not abandon non-virtuous thoughts and behavior. Let's see. Okay, so this is the one that's commonly translated as shame and shamelessness, which is not a real good translation. Okay. Then lack of consideration for others is direct, directed outward and does not abandon non-virtuous thoughts and behavior, even though they adversely affect others and their faith. Some of the above, cor uh, some of the above correspond to root afflictions in the Sanskrit tradition, whereas others are considered auxiliary afflictions. Okay. So far, so good. We got through one of the categories, yeah? Okay, then underlying uh, tendencies. Okay. So the six root afflictions in the Sanskrit tradition, which are klesa, mula klesa, are called underlying tendencies, or anusaya, anushaya in uh, Sanskrit. Yeah, in the Pali Sutras and the Pali Abhidharma. So they are the same six as the root afflictions in the Sanskrit tradition, except attachment has been separated into two, making seven underlying tendencies. Yeah. So the, what are the seven? Attachment to sensuality, so to... Uh, uh, sense objects, okay, anger, um, views or afflictive views, deluded doubt, arrogance, existence, and then ignorance. And you might go, wait a minute, why is existence considered an underlying tendency or something that is going to be non-virtuous? Because, okay, um, and Vasubandhu lists these, these seven in the same way, okay? So here comes the answer to that. Here, attachment to sensuality is the attachment of the desire room, desire realm that hungers after sensory objects of the desire realm. Sights, sounds, smells, tactile sensations, okay? And uh, this attack, um, yeah, so that is attachment 
to objects of the desire realm. So that attachment to sensuality is found only in beings born in the desire realm. Okay. Attachment to existence is attachment to birth in the form and formless realms. So you're still attached to existing in samsara, although you're not attached to the, uh, to sense objects because you're born in, well, or you aspire or are born in the form and formless realms. Okay. So attachment to existence is possessed by beings in all three realms who cling to the bliss of concentration. Okay, so we've talked about that, how some people get really into meditative concentration and then the bliss and the feeling of equanimity is so strong that they uh, either mistake it for liberation or they get so wrapped up in it that they they don't practice the wisdom part of the path anymore. And so then when they uh, pass away from that realm, they fall down to the desire realm again. Okay, so a human um, may abandon attachment for sensual objects in the desire realm, but have strong attachment for meditative states in the form or formless realms. Okay, so you're a human being, you follow the practices to develop shine uh, or serenity, and it feels terrific, and you get very attached to wanting to be born in the form realm. Okay. Yeah, or or the formless realms. If you get if you actualize those states of absorption, and uh, wait a minute. Okay, so beings born in the form realm, okay, so a human being may abandon attachment for sensual objects in the desire realm, but have strong attachment for meditative states in the form or formless realms. Beings born in the form realm are attached to existence in that realm or to existence in the formless realm and they will strive to actualize that level of meditative absorption. Okay, so you may, you've abandoned all your attachment to, you know, pretty sight sounds and that kind of stuff, but your attachment, you're attached to the, um, the feelings in the form realm. And if you're born there, you can still be attached to the feelings in that realm or you want to attain the formless realm in which you are even more, you know, deeply absorbed in concentration, okay? So that's the attachment to existence for the beings in the form realm. Beings born in the formless realms realm are attached to existence there, although not to existence in the desire or form realms. Why? Because... They've already renounced those in order to create, you know, attain the level of concentration of the form and formless realms. Yeah. 
So because they still hanker for samsaric existence, they lack the aspiration for liberation and cannot attain nirvana unless they relinquish that attachment. So that's the problem for the beings born in the formless realms. Yeah, yeah, because they enter their meditation when they're born there, and then they're just, they stay in that sublime concentration and don't meditate to develop wisdom or bodhicitta or any of the other kinds of good qualities. Although the main afflictive mental factors are listed as both underlying tendencies and root afflictions, they are seen differently in the Pali Abhidharma uh, than in the Compendium of Knowledge. Okay, In the Pali tradition, Anusaya literally means to lie down or sleep along with. Okay. So firmly established in the mind, underlying tendencies sleep alongside the mental continuum, acting as the causes for manifest afflictions. Okay, so what are called man- considered manifest afflictions in the Sanskrit tradition, manifest anger, manifest ignorance, and so on, here are considered underlying tendencies that are like latent tendencies that are not manifest, that sleep alongside the mental consciousness yeah, until they're activated. So they have the same names and the same descriptions, except the underlying tendencies are not manifest afflictions, like in the Sanskrit tradition. Okay, so the underlying... Um, the, the, the underlying, um, tendencies are the causes of the manifest afflictions, and they are latent dispositions present even in newborn infants that enable manifest afflictions to arise when the appropriate causes and conditions are present. So they're kind, they sound like they're the, like the seeds of karma, don't they? Yeah, or or what? The no, the the seeds of 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 not seeds of karma. Yeah, the seeds of different mental afflictions. Yeah, sorry. Okay, so although the seven underlying tendencies are listed, all defilements have a dormant form that is also called an underlying tendencies. So just because there's seven of them doesn't mean that that is an exhaustive list of all of them. All of the different defilements have these. So these may be stronger or weaker depending on the person's actions and thoughts. When a certain view or emotion repeatedly arises in our minds, and especially when we act on it, its underlying tendency increases in strength. Okay. In the Sanskrit re- tradition, we would say the uh, the seed of that uh, affliction increases in power, or the seed of the virtuous mental factor increases. But here, its underlying tendencies is in the kind of context of the 
defilements. Okay? Saying someone has a hot temper means that his underlying tendency for anger is strong. When afflictions arise and we counteract them by applying the antidotes, their underlying tendencies weaken. Thank goodness. Okay? Training our minds in correct ways of thinking increases the strength of the antidotal mental factors, transforming someone who has a hot temper into someone who is kind and patient. So underlying tendencies begin to be eradicated from our mind streams when we attain the super-mundane path and become stream-enterers. That would be the path of seeing. Yeah, this corresponds to the path of seeing in the Sanskrit tradition. Okay. Vibhasikas consider the underlying tendencies and the afflictions to be the same, yeah, whereas Satantrikas say that the latent attachment is an underlying tendency and manifest attachment is a full entanglement. Full entanglements is another uh, uh, set, another classification of defilements. I don't think I went into it individually here. Yeah. So this difference in interpretation arose as the Abhidhamikas tried to explain how an affliction could be manifest now, disappear in 15 minutes, and manifest again tomorrow. You know, so you get angry now, then your anger decreases, you're okay, you're in a good mood afterwards. And then, you know, sometime later, somebody looks at you cross-eyed and you get angry again. Okay, so how does that work? You're angry, then there's no anger, then you're angry again. Yeah, doesn't there has to be a continuity of some sort? So without a permanent self, what connects the previous instance of an affliction to the later one? And so here you can see why some of the non-Buddhist schools asserted a permanent self. Yeah, because it's the thing that can carry all the seeds and make the link between a quality that was manifest in the past and, and that quality manifest again at a later time. Satantrikas say that the underlying tendencies are latent forces like seeds that produce manifest afflictions when the right conditions are present. It looks like the whole idea of seeds came from the Abhidharma, not necessarily from the original sutras. Okay. Since the afflictions, like uh, consciousnesses, are impermanent, the underlying tendency of anger connects one instance of anger to another instance of anger the next day. Okay. Vibhasikas do not agree. Yeah. So even in the low, among the lower tenant systems, they have disagreement. Saying that if these dormant potentials were always alongside the consciousness. There could never be a virtuous mental state because virtuous mental states and dormant potentials are incompatible. Okay? 
This is one of the reasons when you get to the Prasangika system, why they talk about the difference between the consciousness and the mere eye and things that uh, uh, seeds carried by the consciousness at one time and by the mere eye at another. Okay. So since afflictions like consciousnesses are impermanent, the underlying tendency of anger connects one instance of anger to another instance of anger the next day. Vibhasakas do not agree, saying that if these dormant potentials were always alongside the consciousness, there could never be a virtuous mental state because virtuous mental states and dormant negative potentials are incompatible. Okay, Thus, they say the underlying uh, tendencies and the afflictions are the same. Okay, so if they say that, then what do they say connects one moment to the next moment? Okay. Then another Amidharma school, so Yasu Mitro say, says it's the Vatsiputriya, Okay, uh, that's another Abhidharma school. They assert that the underlying tendencies are abstract composites, impermanent things that are neither form nor consciousness. What does that sound like? Hmm? The seeds. Yeah, because the seeds are impermanent. They're abstract composites, they're not forms, they're not consciousnesses. Here the underlying tendencies are neutral. Yeah. So in the in the Prasangikas, the, the seeds are non-virtuous. Here, I think, yeah, the seeds are non-virtuous, aren't they? The seeds of mental of the uh, mental factors. The seeds of karma are neutral. Seeds of karma are neutral. Unvirtuous? Yeah, I wouldn't think so either. Okay, that, we'll, we'll put that on, on the back burner, or the front burner. Okay, so here, uh, according to this particular uh, school, Abhidharma school. The underlying tendencies are neutral, neither virtuous nor non-virtuous, and could abide alongside any mental state. 32. Now that doesn't give us anything. So this is similar to the Tibetan thought on this topic. Afflictions, which is afflictions are mental factors. When a manifest affliction fades, a seed of that affliction remains. The seed is a neutral abstract composite. Okay. When the correct conditions come together, the seed turns into the manifest affliction. In this way, connecting one instance of an affliction uh, ma or manifest affliction with another instance. The same mechanism works for virtuous mental factors. Okay. 
So the Buddha noted three underlying tendencies as being particularly dangerous. So here's a quote from the Majjhima Nikaya. When one is touched by a pleasant feeling, if one delights in it, welcomes it, and remains holding to it, the underlying tendency to attachment lies within one. Okay. When one is touched by a painful feeling, if one sorrows, grieves, laments, weeps, beating one's breast, and becomes distraught, the underlying tendency to anger lies within one. When one is touched by a neutral feeling, if one does not understand as it actually is the origin, disappearance, gratification, danger, and escape, in regard to that feeling, the underlying tendency to ignorance lies within one. So here, origin and disappearance refer to the uh, transient nature. The affliction arises and it disappears. Gratification is the attraction or enjoyment that we have from that affliction. Danger is the unpleasant consequences that come from afflictive involvement. And escape is the freedom we wish to attain. So those, those three of gratification, danger, and escape, you'll see them multiple times in the Pali scriptures. Okay. So monastics that one shall here and now make an end to dukkha without abandoning the underlying tendencies to attachment for pleasant feeling, without abolishing the underlying tendency to anger for painful feeling, without extirpating the underlying tendency to ignorance in regard to neutral feeling, without abandoning the ignorance that is the root of samsara and arousing true knowledge, this is impossible. Okay, so you cannot gain liberation without getting rid of, of these uh, three underlying tendencies. Let's see. Oh, okay, so we'll go a little bit further. Observing our lives, we clearly see that attachment immediately arises in response to pleasant feelings. For example, eating some tasty food. This is very interesting to observe in your life. You have some pleasant thing, and watch how attachment, boing, it's right there. Yeah? I want more. I don't want this to end. Yeah? Aversion arises in response to an unpleasant feeling, such as having a stomach ache. Yeah? So again, there's the unpleasant feeling, then there's the aversion to it. Yeah? And these happen, uh, the unpleasant feeling causes the aversion, you know, again, very quickly. Ignorance arises in response to a neutral feeling. What is needed is wisdom, insight, and true knowledge to free our minds from these underlying tendencies. However, these three underlying tendencies must not be abandoned in regard to all pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings. Okay? So why? 
because the the joy and bliss experienced in the first dhyana uh, overpower the underlying tendency to sensual attachment. Okay, so joy and bliss are, are two mental factors prominent in the the first dhyana, and their function is they overpower the attachment to sensual uh, pleasure because the feeling of joy and bliss is so much nicer than, you know, eating chocolate ice cream. Huh? The unpleasant feeling from thinking about dukkha overcomes the underlying tendency to anger by inspiring us to become a non-returner. Okay, so this is why you don't abandon all uh, all of three of these underlying tendencies, yeah? Because the unpleasant feeling from thinking about dukkha, yeah, that overcomes the underlying tendency to anger by inspiring us to become a non-returner, yeah? Because having anger in our mind is so uncomfortable and unpleasant, okay, that uh, here, when you have the, uh, un sometimes when you contemplate dukkha, yeah, it it's, it pushes buttons. It's it's not. It it's a meditation that makes your mind real sober, but it doesn't make you you know. Oh, this is wonderful. So uh, yeah, but it's very functional, very functional. And the neutral feeling in the fourth dhyana. Uh, uh, leads to equanimity, and employing that Diana to realize the four truths leads to our hardship. Okay? So you don't want to abandon uh, the three underlying tendencies with regard to all the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings. Because having those feelings, yeah, can... Um, can overcome different things in the path that we want to overcome. Okay. Uh, even before, it instead of saying the three underlying tendencies, it sounds like the three feelings. Underlying tendencies. Hmm. Even before attaining insight and wisdom, we can temporarily lessen the underlying tendencies. When a pleasant feeling arises, be mindful of it, but do not delight in it. Instead of clinging to and wanting more of that experience, simply let it be. Yeah. In that way, the underlying tendency to sensual attachment isn't activated. So that's an interesting experiment. Yeah, try that when you're eating lunch. Yeah, there's something that tastes good, you enjoy the pleasant feeling, and you just are aware of it. And you don't let it take you to the next step, which is attachment, and I want more. Or you see something beautiful, and you just enjoy it, or you hear a beautiful sound, and you just listen to it, and you 
Don't let the mind go to attachment to that sound. Or in the same way, uh, you know, sometimes when you eat lunch, the food is not to your liking. And it's so easy to go from that to, oh, these cooks, or, you know, how did they, how come they burnt the carrots again? You know, how do you burn carrots? Um, well, obviously, there's a secret method <laughs> to how to burn carrots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's done intentionally. Huh? Oh, it's really intentional? I thought somebody <laughs> fell asleep. <laughs> Are you kidding me? No. No? They deliberately burned the carrots? Okay. <laughs> so similarly, practice observing unpleasant feelings by recalling their transience. Don't arouse anger. So let the unpleasant feeling come. Be aware of it. Let it go. Restraining our senses is also helpful because by decreasing contact with sensual objects, we experience fewer pleasant and unpleasant feelings and thus fewer instances of sensual attachment and anger. Okay, so that's another function of our monastic precepts is to uh, prevent us from, uh, you know, encountering so many pleasant and unpleasant objects and generating more attachment and more uh, upset. Okay, so we'll stop here. And we'll, yeah, so uh, do the homework assignment. Yeah. Huh? You have a question? Okay. We have a few minutes for questions. I spoke quite a long time this time. Maybe it's a request. Uh-huh. Um, next time, or maybe or maybe it's a time to address again the question, how does a, a um, blah, 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 composite, abstract composite become a consciousness, and then the consciousness goes back to being an abstract composite? When we're not, when when the substantial cause of something needs to be the same continuum of type, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, but but the seed of anger is in the same continuum as anger, right? But the seed of anger is an abstract composite. So what? <laughs> not that it's neutral; it's that it's a different type of phenomenon. Yeah, and that, but but would. Is is the substantial cause of uh, a Foswall, and and they're both form. Yeah, so they're both form, but and I don't understand why there's the hang-up with it being uh, why you're thinking that something that is an abstract composite can't become a consciousness. Yeah. That's one of the proofs. For yeah. But here we're talking about mental factors. So what else would, do you want to posit as what carries, what links the previous moment of anger to the next moment? If you don't, if you don't like 
seeds because you say they're abstract composites, then posit something else. But I don't like seeds. It's that I want to try to understand the discrepancy between that view and uh, how they explain this. I just want to know if we can talk about how they explain this, but maybe I just okay. need to figure it out. But when, when we talk about consciousness, yes, one moment of consciousness, in, and here it's talking about consciousness in general, just basic clarity and cognizance. cognizance. That is the substantial cause of the next moment of just basic clarity and cognizance. Yeah? But here we're talking about a mental factor. And a mental factor is not the same as the, the whole consciousness. It's not the same as a primary consciousness. It's something different. But even, even when you, when you fall asleep, Okay, your visual consciousness is not operating, but it hasn't become non-existent, so there must be some latent form or some seed of a visual consciousness that connects that to the next. So what it's just saying is that, you know, there's some, when there's a difference, it's highlighting the difference between something that is manifest and something that is latent. Yeah? And that you've got to have something that connects two manifest things. Otherwise, put it in the Geshe question list. If my, if my explanation doesn't satisfy, then think about it some more yourself. See if you can come up with something that that makes more sense, or put it on the list to, to ask different Keshis. Okay? Yeah. I'm just wondering about this need to link different instances of an affliction, because mm -hmm. at one point you were saying how we assume there's this repressed anger, like there's this anger we carry mm -hmm. in us, but each instance of anger is completely different than a previous instant. We just label it anger because it has similar characteristics. So why is there this need to say that, oh, all instances of anger must be linked to each other? Um, well, it is simply because if you say, okay, I'm angry right now, I calm down, and there's nothing that links this episode with anger to the future, then when I calm down now, I have no more anger ever that is ever going to arise because there's no seed of anger. In which case, whenever any, uh, you know, if I get angry and there's no seed, then I never get angry again. If I get attached, my anger stops. I never get attached again. I get to liberation really effortlessly. You know, because we're saying that it, it's the it's the whole idea of things having continuums that their form may change, how they look may change, but there's a continuum that allows things to exist. Okay. Otherwise, if the continuum is cut, yeah, 
then then there's going to be no more of that thing ever, ever, ever. Yeah, but we clearly see that there's a difference between us and an arhat. Yeah, we have the seeds of anger. Arhat doesn't. Okay. Yeah, so think about it, you know. If if something ends and there's no continuity, then then there there's problems establishing things, isn't there? Yeah, I go to sleep tonight. All my sense objects uh, are not functioning. Then tomorrow I'm dead. Actually, I'm dead when I go to sleep. Everything stops. All the consciousness has stopped. There's no continuity. Yeah. So that that's why there's a need to posit something that links, you know, because there's it, it and when you talk about mind, you know, any state of mind is not always completely there all the time. It arises, it ceases, it arises, it ceases. Yeah. So you posit a seed. Yeah. A seed is part of the continuum. And the seed of anger is not going to give rise to attachment or to jealousy. It's going to give rise to anger. So there's some connection, even though the seed is a... uh, a um, abstract, abstract composite, there's some connection between it and consciousnesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's got to be, otherwise, yeah, some, it stops and then finished. Okay, let's conclude. Also, if you don't like seeds, you can try um, the having happened. Yeah. <laughs>